Welcome to Rationalist, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your co-host, Morgan Wack, and I'm here with the Delphian, Eddie Matthews. Hey, what's up? <laughs> How just, you doing I just today, got Eddie? full YouTube. Hey, followers. Uh, like and subscribe. Uh, good to see you again. My life's been crazy busy. No. Um, yeah, going pretty well. It's uh, raining in San Diego right now. <laughs> Once in a blue moon, that happens. Nice. That's probably good, though. Does everything get all green, or is there not enough? No, no, Morgan. There's no real things to get green here anyway. It's a gotcha. chaparral, you know, landscape, so not not a ton of green, but that's okay. Um, you know what I've never uh, understood, Morgan? Why do, uh, how do they, why do they measure rain in inches? It does, I guess, probably because they way they did it early on was just like collecting it in a bucket and seeing how high it got that's my guess but when it the size of your bucket uh determine how high it got so if all the farmers had different size buckets they'd be like oh it rained five inches last night you'd be like oh, what no it rained three that's why you need standardized buckets <laughs> okay so early on when people were measuring rain, all the farmers just had one standardized bucket that they would all come to and be like, oh, yeah, it rained six inches. No doubt about it. And then, you know, they say that uh, the shovel uh, salesmen were who made it rich in the gold rush. Yeah. In the, uh, the measurement uh, era, it was the bucket salesmen that really struck gold. So it's a little, little side story of history, but certainly very factual. If anyone checks that out, definitely, definitely 100% true. <laughs> okay um any hoozle uh what are we talking about today wait was it not buckets i thought that was the whole story we were just gonna do bucket measurements and different types of standardized materials uh no no <laughs> not at all dang everyone i'm sure everyone's flip switching it off now they hear we're gonna do something else but i guess we could talk about something else uh, I think we're talking about Report on the Barnhouse Effect, which is a short story from Kurt Vonnegut. One of the greats. One of the greats indeed. And it's very short. So if anyone wants to pause this right now and go read it, it'll probably take you 10 minutes tops. Um, it's very quick. And you can find it online. Uh, and I think we can post the link that I have to this without getting in trouble. So I will do that. Um, so if anyone wants to read it prior to this conversation, there will be spoilers. I disagree. You can read 15 pages in, eight, in 10 minutes? I mean, maybe it's the way it's written on this uh, thing. I was wow, reading, but, uh, geez. I mean, maybe. Right, we minutes. get it. You read, you're smart. We get it. I did, did I mention I didn't actually comprehend any of it, but I scared, <laughs> scrolled from top to bottom. So um, anyway, it's very good. And yeah, I mean, usually we talk about things where I think we both um, have some sort of claim to, to expertise, but I certainly don't in this area. I really like Vonnegut. I always have. And I, of course, like science fiction, but you are, you are PhD in creative writing. So this is uh, your time to lead the show and uh, teach us all what it means to be doctor of creative writing. Well, uh, first of all, I disagree with your former statement about uh us having equal expertise on our topics but that's for another day this you think you're around, an expert on all of them <laughs> yeah you'd bring nothing to the table 
Um, this time around, however, it's kind of a nice fusion because um, I think the, the content is one of international relations of the story and uh, the, the medium, a short story, short fiction is uh, something that, I don't know, I don't really specialize in, but I'm an admirer of and I've read a lot of. Um, so yeah, it's a nice kind of uh, nexus of our interests. And this is actually from uh, a collection called Welcome to the Monkey House that you gave me like six months ago to read. And I uh, included this story. You, you specifically pointed out this story saying like, you have to read this one, um, forget all the others. And so I read this one first and was blown away by it and uh, assigned it to my students. And I think they found it pretty fascinating too. Um, but it raises a lot of uh, interesting ethical questions. And um, I think it just does what the best short stories do and kind of makes you think and uh, lingers with you long after you uh, finish the last line. So without further ado, why don't we just get into the, uh, the plot? What's the story about, Morgan? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd, I'd love to to talk a bit about kind of like literature and short stories more generally too, but we can get into that maybe at the end after we talk about the story a bit. Um, but yeah, so report on the, the Barnhouse effect essentially is a, a letter from a student or now a professor, but a former student of Professor Arthur Barnhouse, who is essentially a psychologist at a small, I assume some sort of liberal arts or just a small kind of state university not really of any fame or notoriety of any sorts, but uh, essentially- um, We get it. It's not University of Washington. No. You can just say it. I'm mostly saying this. there's maybe a lot of things I relate to here in the character's background, as we both do. Um, but basically, the character in question is detailing how this thing called the Barnhouse Effect came to be. And essentially discussing how his former professor came to him um, and they kind of gradually revealed that he had this power that he calls uh, dynamo psychism, I think. Uh, but Force of later, the mind. Yes, which is people are like, that's too confusing. We're just going to call it the Barnhouse effect, which to be fair is probably the right call. Um, and he, Basically, it's, it's some sort of telekinesis, right? He can control things with his mind. There's a lot of explanation about what exactly happens, but it's more like he can condense energy and blow things up or uh, move things with his mind somehow. And he essentially figured this out. Um, and it's discussed that lots of people have the potential to do this, but you have to have some sort of um, enigmatic code to actually utilize the skill in a way that makes it so you can kind of condense and grow the power. Um, and so the professor doesn't really know what to do with his newfound skill. And so he eventually writes to the government and says, look, I have this talent. I want to use it for peace, but I'm not really sure. I'm not an expert on anything but psychology. Uh, can you help me out and help me use it to, you know, for the greatest good? And unsurprisingly, in that it's Vonnegut and written around World War II, um, the focus then becomes how this is used for weaponry. And I would say it's a very loose, if at all, a metaphor for nuclear weapons. I would say some of what Vonnegut's really good at and is shown here as well, and I, I hear your opinion about this, is 
I think with modern satire and a lot of satire that's just not as deft, I think people think, okay, if I want my satire to be great, I want it to be like almost so cryptic that you have to decipher what the satire is about or what we're critiquing. Whereas Vonnegut decides, no, I'm going to very straightforwardly tell you exactly what I'm talking about. I'm just going to do it in such a way where it's still captivating and it gets my point across, you know, very straightforward and in a way that everyone can understand, which I think is a skill that is much more challenging than it sounds. Um, anyway, the professors then kind of use and they train him and they want him to become a weapon for the United States. Um, but he decides to run away and to start munitions of every country in the world so that no one can fight against each other. Um, and so when the, the student is writing the letter, it's revealed that he's basically been on the run for a couple of decades, destroying munitions around throughout the world. And every time people think that he's dead, um, they start to build up their ammunitions again, only for him to reappear. And then finally, at the very end, in a very, uh, I would say, time contemporary, I think that around the 50s and 60s, people really like these like concise time, um, you know, conclusions, very, I would say, M. Night Shyamalan-esque twists. Um, and this is definitely one of those where the, the author says that he got a, a cryptic email or not email, a cryptic letter that's basically detailed how he could also develop the talent. And so he then sends this letter in to reveal that he's going to become the successor to Barn uh, to Barnhouse so that the world can never again develop munitions. Is that more or less a, a good run through? Yeah. Um, so, and a tiny bit of background on Vonnegut in case uh, our listeners don't know much about him. He uh is i'd say his most prominent work is slaughterhouse five um, yeah which is kind of a fictionalization of his experience being a prisoner of war during world war ii and being in the being in a bunker while dresden uh the german city was bombed um firebombed uh above him and just the absurdity of war that he kind of experienced being kind of a prisoner but protected but being bombed by his own uh you know military and then going down into the bunker and there being a city and coming up again and they're essentially being a, a devastated uh wasteland um so that and um he did we'll link in the in the show notes uh as they say but we'll link to this letter that he wrote uh, when he was discharged in 1945 to his father, I believe. And it kind of recounts um, his experience with, uh, as a prisoner of war, but also, you know, he was kind of led on this death march and people starved to death. And it was kind of just by luck and grit that he survived. Um, and the letter is, you know, even though at that point, wanting it's probably in his early 20s, it's so much like his voice and it's just a letter to his father you know describing this horrific experience um so if anyone's curious about uh what he kind of went through that i think informed certainly this story and many of his stories uh we'll link that letter in in the show notes but um i say that just because uh this was published in 1950 so you know only five five years after the end of world war ii and um i'll read a short excerpt of a few paragraphs about when private barnhouse uh who 
later became Professor Bonghaus, but when he discovered dynamopsychism. And crucially, so, sorry, I just want to say 1950 is also the first year that the Soviet Union showed nuclear capabilities with a nuclear test. So it's uh, mm. written right at the heights of essentially the beginning of the Cold War. Yeah. Um, from time to time, Private Barnhouse was invited to take part in games of chance by his barrack mates. He knew, he knew nothing about the games and usually begged off. But one evening, out of social grace, he agreed to shoot craps. It was either terrible or wonderful that he played, depending upon whether or not you like the world as it is now. Shoot sevens, Pop, someone said. So Pop shot sevens, ten in a row, to bankrupt the barracks. He retired to his bunk and, as a mathematical exercise, calculated the odds against his feet on the back of a laundry slip. His chances of doing it, he found, were one in almost ten million. Bewildered, he borrowed a pair of dice from the man in the bunk next to his. He tried to roll sevens again, but got only the usual assortment of numbers. He lay back for a moment, then resumed his toying with the dice. He rolled ten more sevens in a row. He might have dismissed the phenomenon with a low whistle, but the professor instead mulled over the circumstances surrounding his two lucky streaks. There was one single factor in common. On both occasions, the same thought train had flashed through his mind just before he threw the dice. It was that thought train which aligned the professor's brain cells into what has since become the most powerful weapon on earth so this uh this kind of thought train is discovered in the barracks uh on that day in 1942 but is kind of slowly honed over uh, a series of years until it's kind of um perfected into being able to have essentially the equivalent of nuclear uh, energy and uh, like you mentioned in, in kind of the plot synopsis it becomes a highly coveted thing and um, in his letter to the Secretary of State he says dear sir I've discovered a new force which costs nothing to use and which is probably more important than atomic energy I should like to see it used most effectively in the cause of peace and am therefore requesting your advice as to how this might best be done Yours truly, A. Barnhouse. Because he's uh, his rationale for uh, writing the Secretary of State, he's like, hey, I, I shouldn't be trusted with this any more than anybody. Um, and it's like, you know, a, a single person having an atomic bomb. So I need um, some kind of constraints or advice, accountability, all that kind of thing. And then, of course, Morgan, what does the government do? They try to make it into a weapon. They charge the Precisely. poor taxes. Regressive taxation. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, great. Um, so yeah, they try to make it into a weapon. Um, and I think this is an interesting... Can I read one more section? Absolutely. Um, so he's having this exchange with... Um, so the Secretary of State calls him up with the Secretary of Defense, General Barker, um, or who I assume is the Secretary of Defense. I don't know if they ever actually um, name it. Uh, yeah, so it's a, it's a military general in the State Department's William K. Cuthrell, General Honus Barker and William K. Cuthrell. So uh, these two guys uh, visit them and they 
put this test together, Operation Brainstorm, and they basically have this whole kind of infantry of ships and planes. And uh, the idea is that he's going to use dynamosychism to level this entire, um, you know, test of planes and infantry, et cetera. Um, without the public's knowledge, of course, because it's top secret. So that's kind of the uh, test they put together to see if this thing's real. And so as they're talking to him about how to use this uh, force of the mind, this dynamosychism, um, he kind of tries to appeal to them to say, like, do we really need to weaponize this? So um, the professor turned gray and closed his eyes. As I told you before, my friend, I don't know what I can do. He added bitterly, as for, uh, as for this Operation Brainstorm, I was never consulted about it and it strikes me as childish and insanely expensive. General Barker bridled. Sir, he said, your field is psychology and I wouldn't presume to give you advice in that field. Mine is national defense. I've had 30 years of experience and success, professor, and I ask you not to criticize my judgment. The professor appealed to Mr. Cuthrell, who is the State Department representative. Look, he pleaded, isn't it war and military matters we're all trying to get rid of? Wouldn't it be a whole lot more significant and lots cheaper for me to try moving cloud masses into drought areas and things like that? I admit I know next to nothing about international politics, but it seems reasonable to suppose that nobody would want to fight wars if there were enough of everything to go around. Mr. Cuthrell, I'd like to try running generators where there isn't any coal or water power, irrigating deserts and so on. Why, you couldn't figure out, you could figure out which, uh, what each country needs to make the most of its resources, and I could give it to them without costing American taxpayers a penny. Eternal vigilance is the price of freedom, said the general heavily. Mr. Cuthrell threw the general a look of mild distaste. Unfortunately, the general is right in his own way. He said, I wish to heaven the world were ready for ideals like yours, but it simply isn't. We aren't surrounded by brothers, but by enemies. It isn't a lack of food or resources that has us on the brink of war. It's a struggle for power. What's going on? Who's going to be in charge of the world? Our kind of people or theirs? And I thought that that kind of captures, I don't know, the, the essence of what the story is trying to communicate, right? Absolutely. And I think there's some good bits of thought on what it means to be, you know, expertise, who takes precedence, you know, psychologists or you know, war professionals in this area, but whether or not people outside the realm of warfare have a say in what, you know, whether we choose peace or war. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's just brilliantly written and very concise and to the point um, in a way that Vonnegut is unmatched in a lot of other areas. Yeah, it makes me think of this essay. I tried looking it up before. I, I can't remember who wrote it. It might have been Vonnegut or it might have just been another social critic um, of the time. I couldn't find it. If I find it, I'll put it in the show notes too. But um, it was an essay that came out uh, around the time of Vietnam War and the essayist was making the point like look shouldn't we be dropping refrigerators and uh you know generators and everything into this area wouldn't that be cheaper and better than dropping these really expensive bombs like <laughs> just uh i think trying to make a compelling argument that also um professor barnhouse is making here in the sense of um 
what's at the root of this war? Is it really just um, a power struggle? Is it, or is it um, a lack of resources? Um, and why are we so convinced that uh, the best use of, of this new, not really technology, this new uh, you know, force of the mind discovery, why are we convinced that the immediate uh, right thing to do is to, is to weaponize it for our national defense? So kind of calling that into question. And the essayist was, of course, calling into question, like, is the best use of uh, our time and money and resources uh, dropping, you know, napalm on this country? Um, which I think is, I don't know. So I think what I find really interesting about this passage is you have, I think, the worldviews very kind of clearly on display from the general and from the secretary of state. Um, and I think that that worldview clearly differs from Professor Barnhouse's and, you know, possibly from the readers as well, I guess, depending on the reader. But this idea of um, it's just a struggle for power, right? That's why there will always be war. That's, that's a part of the human condition. And it's never going to go away. And it's not fixable with, um, you know, a socialist system or with bringing resources that they currently don't have. It's part of the human condition and it'll never go away. So the best thing to do with this technology is just to protect our country and our country's interests um, because we'll always be under attack of some sort. And um, I think that worldview is limiting to a lot of extent, but it also justifies pretty much anything, any military action that America would do under this guise of defense, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think the viewing it as a technology and it even says in there, you know, should we be using new technologies? Our new technology is always in the greater good for humanity. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. Is like a great way of viewing a lot of contemporary work. So I think a lot of the rationale for kind of investment in advanced AI and work on genome sequencing and a lot of this is always rationalized as well, you know, maybe we're not going, if we don't do the research, some other country is going to have the advantage over us. I mean, most contemporary work is focused on China. You know, if China, if we basically stop doing AI research because we think it might be dangerous, that's not gonna stop China from doing it. And therefore we need to do it first so that when we're faced with some sort of existential battle over artificial intelligence or a contemporary or just conventional warfare that involves AI components will be on even keel. Um, and I think that, you, you hear that argument. I mean, that's, a, that's probably the predominant argument in the field today. And I, I, I would say, I, I don't think it's necessarily always wrong, but I think this is a good counterfactual um, kind of example of what would happen if you, if you didn't necessarily always um, with this kind of realist existentialist version of power conflict. Um, I, I think another thing about Vonnegut that is in most of, if not all of his work, is I think with a lot of authors and just thinkers in general, there's a tendency to want to apply meaning to things. There's, you know, even whether it's in the ending of a story or whether it's in explanation for how things come about, kind of trying to ascribe purpose and meaning is something that I think we're all kind of predisposed toward. Um, but Vonnegut, I think because of his experiences in the war, very much brings an absurdist quality to all of his work in that I think he truly believes that 
the randomness is like a you know if not the uh, essential feature of the world and history it is you know the essential feature that the reason he survived the war and other compatriots didn't wasn't because he had some sort of innate talent or because he was in the you know he chose to stand in the right spot but it was just sheer randomness and i think that's how he sees the universe and if you see things as sheerly random it doesn't mean that there's a linear drive kind of what we talked about last episode towards some sort of state where we have artificial intelligence or where there's a specific utopian level of technology it's more about pushing us down a path that will lead to the best outcomes not necessarily one that's more advanced or more you know utopian than it is now um and i think that's it's a worldview that's easy to understand but i think is not the dominant worldview in any type of literature or film, uh, except for kind of absurdist circles. Yeah, I think that's a good description of Vonnegut's worldview too, which is hard to refute, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Because, uh, I don't know. I, I think uh, for much of my life, I've kind of, growing up in evangelical culture there's this kind of idea that everything happens for a reason and everything is in god's hands and uh i know vonnegut would find that nonsense because you know there were people i'm sure that that he knew and loved you know who were his uh barracks mates who starved to death or were beaten to death on this kind of you know death march uh and he survived because of his genetic makeup gave him more endurance or something, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, in any number of reasons. Um, and so I don't know how somebody who goes through something like Dresden or, uh, you know, somebody in Ukraine right now can, it seems like Vonnegut's worldview is a lot more uh, I don't know just it seems fundamentally true than this kind of idea that there is a purpose and a design behind all the events of the world right yeah absolutely and I, I mean I'm sure we've even said this on this podcast before but human beings one thing we're terrific at which is very few but is spotting patterns right everyone wants to see a pattern in something we want there to be you know some sort of anecdote to the chaos that is most things um, and that helps us with a lot of kind of things in life and I think it's very helpful for kind of underlying psychology to be able to read into things and find um, solutions to specific problems but that there's very you know I mean there's a lot of evidence that at least most of what happens is pretty random and you can try to ascribe purpose to certain things um, but I think he I think he views that as a reason, kind of like Carl Sagan did in the vastness of the universe. We're trying not to succumb to how epic and small it makes us feel, but trying to use that to spur on you know, the creation of a, of a better world. And I think that's how Vonnegut sees it as well. If everything is sheerly random, then there's no reason why we can't reformulate things in a better way, just as much as a worse way, right? If we are actually in control and everything is just vast chaos, then that actually means there's more to work with than if there was some predisposed purpose and we didn't have control over it. I think that's how he would view it in kind of optimistic terms. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that, uh, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's fascinating to think of private Vonnegut, you know, someone yeah. like her Vonnegut being uh-huh. in the war and how much of this type of imagination and worldview and, you know, how much of it predated World War II and how much of it was shaped after what he experienced, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of makes me think of, uh, I read this profile in the New Yorker of Wendell Berry, who is a prominent, you know, essayist, poet, uh, novelist, who is an agricultural farmer in Kentucky and then just writes prolifically, you know, over the last six years. So they profiled him in the New Yorker and um, I have it in front of me. And it just made me think of when he was kind of flunking out of all of his classes, his parents sent him to a military school to try to, you know, fix him. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he says that uh, Millersburg, I guess is the name of the Millersburg Military Institute. Um, so this is quoting from the article. Millersburg had an effect on Wendell, but not the one his parents had intended. The highest aim of the school was to produce a perfectly obedient, militarist, puritanical moron who could play football. <laughs> his greatest lesson from those years Take a simpleton and give him power and confront him with intelligence and you have a tyrant. And I think that's kind of what happens in an exchange, right, between Barnhouse and the uh, Secretary of Defense and um, and the general, right, is here's just, you know, an experiment that they're doing, Operation Brainstorm, that's going to cost probably millions of dollars to pull off, you know, with all this kind of equipment that's going to be leveled. Um, and here's like a huge ethical kind of philosophical question about how do we use this, this new tool that we've described and it's not even a discussion. It's just dismissed kind of out of hand um, with these two. And there's no even kind of questioning their worldviews. It's so kind of instantiated like we were talking about before. Um, And so I think that it's something that's frustrating to me is this, huge um gap of value or esteem i don't really know right the the right word to describe it between those who like run things run this country run corporations and academia and i know this is going to feel like a very naive um argument maybe to a lot of people but here you have you know people getting phds and you know breaking new research and all these fronts and you have people studying uh philosophy for years and you know writing hundreds of pages based on ethical questions and or what have you right and psychology in this case barnhouse is a psychologist and he's kind of bringing up this psychological or philosophical question certainly an ethical question and it doesn't seem like there's ever um military generals or you know state department officials bringing philosophers and ethicists into the room to decide, you know, how to deal with major questions of um, that are going to impact potentially thousands of lives. It's more the military industrial complex uh, continuing what it does best. And I just think that, um, I don't know, that's something that 
that there should be more of an ongoing dialogue between, um, you know, experts in these other fields and the people, you know, running these things. They were more, seem to be more maybe utilitarian or pragmatist, you know? Yeah, I think it's understated how much our kind of upbringing and the views that we get drilled into us either by experience or by society around us shape how we interpret real world events. And I think if we bring this to today, I think people are trying to understand Putin and using references to the past. I think there's some helpful bits there, but I think the one that always stands out to me is Paul Kagame from Rwanda, who grew up in kind of a refugee camp in Uganda, was a part of a military, the military group that came um, and kind of fought for power in Uganda and then fought to kind of take back over Rwanda. Um, And then when he, you know, today, he basically treats governance of the country, which is now, you know, pretty peaceful, as if it were constantly at war. And I think if you take his actions to go after dissidents abroad and you take his actions to kind of suppress dissent internally and in neighboring countries without that context, it seems psychotic and sheerly dictatorial. But if you take it in the frame that this, you know, this person was born in a refugee camp and literally has been fighting since they were, you know, 12, it's hard it's almost difficult to see it the other way where suddenly they become into a position and they're supposed to just interpret everything as peaceful that they've, they've won and that the world doesn't act as some sort of realist microcosm. And I think you see the same thing with Putin, who if your framework like the U S was in, in the sixties and seventies and eighties is a realist one. And you think it is about great power conflict. It's very hard to then change your frame and say, Oh, actually, you know, if we have a new technology, we can all get along and use it to benefit humanity. I think that's a much harder pivot for especially people who have grown their whole lives in a different framework than it seems, especially for people you know our age and even slightly older who never really were around for any of the you know great wars. You could say that there are some experiences with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and things, but they're really, right they don't have mass conscription. Um, they may be the same for people living in those countries who have to deal with the consequences. But for people here, you hear about it on the nightly news, but it's not like it affects your day-to-day life. And I think that's why we can value things like gas prices and, and uh, you know, social security costs over the value of peace, because it's so much more difficult to imagine a world at war when you haven't actually lived in it. Yeah, it's really... Yeah, it's a really tricky um, thing to consider because it comes back to what are the shared values of a culture or a nation or a community that you can be able to come back to regardless of if you were uh, abused as a child and see uh, humanity and other people as threatening or if you grew up in a loving household and see other people as inherently good. Uh, what kind of values can each of those people come back to to hopefully base decisions on regardless of what your personal experience is? Um, that might 
be a little bit too idealistic for as far as how the world works. It seems regardless of what people will ideologically say they believe, they will base their decisions on their personal experience. Um, and that's kind of how they see the world, it seems. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's just personal. I mean, I think there are certainly exceptions. I'm speaking in broad strokes and I'm specifically using individual examples because of their role in kind of contemporary warfare and governance. But I, I think it's not just personal experience. It's how the society around you has taught you to interpret those experiences, right? I mean, you could reframe most of history in very different ways, depending on who's telling the story and get very different lessons um, from those frames. And I think growing up in, you know, the United States where most of our history is told from a pro-realist standpoint, at least until recently, where you talk about, you know, the victories in World War One and World War Two and some setbacks in Vietnam, but that's only, you know, recently become more prominent in the kind of lexicon. I would say that if you were to reinterpret things and redevelop curriculum, then you might see things differently. And that I think is why we end up with battles over education, even if people aren't specifically thinking that it's about reframing the cultural constructs. That really is why, you know, different cohorts and different generations can plausibly affect real change because they're coming into the world that is, you know, completely different and where the understandings about how things work are completely different because the same experiences don't carry from generation to generation the same way. Yeah, certainly. Uh, and maybe they shouldn't, you know, like maybe, maybe that's one thing that hopefully progresses a society is that some of those are passed on and some of those aren't like a, well, I a think lessons it's, learned yeah. from a war. Absolutely. I mean, I think it can be good and bad, right? Like if you, yeah. the, our, I would say our generation and at least, you know, the generation younger than us in the United States, certainly most people aren't in a war mindset. And that's great. I mean, that is essentially what Fukuyama was talking about at the end of history, right? It was that we could reframe things around discussions of democracy versus other and rather than some big ideological conflict of democracy versus communism and some ultimate realist battle for ideological supremacy. I would say that has become true, but I think the reason why Russia's invasion of Ukraine is such a shock and why I think it's a bit disingenuous to say, oh, why didn't you, why don't you care about these civil wars elsewhere? You can care about those things as well, but there is something noticeably different about a foreign invasion of a sovereign state by a real world power with nuclear weapons, because that reframes the calculus that you're going to make, right? I can very much see in some worst case scenario where the world becomes more of a, you know, secondary cold war, where we reframe around this type of realist world politics, real politic worlds, where it is more about real gains against China, right? Relative gains rather than some sort of world where we're focused on making everyone better off. And I think that there are a lot of people around today who do see the world as a non-zero sum game where we're trying to make everyone better off. Um, and I think more than there were 30 years ago, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be even more in 30 years. Um, I think it's some somewhat cyclical, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I'm wondering if uh, I can uh, read one more uh, passage. Of the book yeah, please do. Bring us back to the possible. story. Yeah, bring, bring it back to Vonnegut. Um, I think that... Uh, so basically, Professor Barnhouse, um, and this, I think, also is a good example of Vonnegut um, complicating the thinking of the reader rather than simplifying it, right? Yeah. If this story were simply a morality tale about war being bad and technology being bad, then I think he would commit the cardinal sin of a writer, which is to treat your reader like they're stupid. And I think what you mentioned at the start of what's one of Vonnegut's biggest gifts is, is the ability to make satire that's smart and provocative and communicates its point clearly, but does not condescend to the, to the audience or the, or the reader, you know? That's mm -hmm. extremely hard to do because usually when satire is communicating a point that's straightforward, um, it's SNL doing a Trump impression and calling that satire because it's Alec Baldwin doing a funny accent, quote unquote funny, and just saying stuff that Trump said, you know? And that just treats the audience like they're stupid because um, we all saw the press conference, so why is this being regurgitated, you know? Um, and so I think that there's kind of a, a special Nistavonigan and complicating our thinking. I think this passage on page 185, um, I think reveals something that he recognizes about the human condition that's in um, harmony with what the you know, Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense are identifying this kind of power struggle. So this passage goes, since that day, of course, the professor has been systematically destroying the world's armaments until they're, right? Because so he, um, he disappears, I should say, he disappears from this uh, relationship with the State Department because he feels like he can't trust them to do the right thing with this um, weapon or this power, I should say. Um, so he writes a letter saying, gentlemen, as the first super weapon with a conscience, I'm removing myself from your national defense stockpile, setting a new precedent in the behavior of ordinance. I have humane reasons for going off a barnhouse. And so, and then um, the narration picks up right after that. Since that day, of course, the professor has been systematically destroying the world's armaments until there is now little with which to equip an army other than rocks and sharp sticks. His activities haven't exactly resulted in peace, but have rather precipitated a bloodless and entertaining sort of war that might be called the War of the Tattletales. Every nation is flooded with enemy agents whose sole mission is to locate military equipment, which is promptly wrecked when it is brought to the professor's attention in the press. Right, so he's not saying that uh, him going off and using this for, for good uh, is going to fix the human condition of power struggle and you know desire for war, desire for conquering, uh, et cetera. But it's more removing the magnitude of damage that people can, can do with military equipment. And I think that that's kind of, a, I don't know, a fascinating element to the story too. Yeah, I mean, it's, if we wanted to talk about like military parallels, there's a lot of, in in real politic the big difference is whether or not 
at the current moment in time, offensive or defensive powers are more dominant. And one of the huge risks with atomic weapons is that they're pretty much surely offensive weapons and they're almost impossible to stop, which is why there's such a danger. If, if defensive, there have been times when defensive weaponry has been the prominent mode of weaponry. So let's say like right now in Ukraine, you're seeing tanks are being, are, are basically have been a lot less effective than they had been in, in some previous wars because of improvements in anti-tank um, machinery on the ground. And that has had a huge uh, difference because it basically makes it much more challenging to take over foreign land if people can take out millions of dollars worth of equipment with just a single you know, shoulder armament. Um, and that's basically what Barn, Barnhouse is, right? He's a huge defensive weapon that is making it very difficult to justify investment in offensive gains, right? If you were the United States in this story, why would you spend $500 million developing a new weapon if you knew there was a pretty decent chance that it would be destroyed? You wouldn't, right? And so that's why defensive weaponry is seen as kind of the gold standard of peace. Ironically, it's still a weapon, but it's, it's about defense and it signals to other countries that you're not building something that's meant to attack. And so there's no reason to, um, justify a preemptive attack it's more about building things to make a home you know more peaceful um i would say so i think you can dig into vonnegut stories in a slightly more like fun and less specifically like u.s or an international defense type way i think there's a lot of parallels to like modern superhero stories here as well right it's there's a lot of um, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. I think even Vonnegut would admit that even within the telling of this story, if someone not as moral or um, concerned with world peace were to be given this power, this could very much end in a much more, like a much bloodier world than more peaceful world than the one that the story brings about. And so I think that's part of that random quality that he discusses. Well, what do you think that Vonnegut would actually want something like this to exist? And then would you actually want there to be some sort of power like this? Yeah. Um, I think Vonnegut would want something like this to exist under, of course, the massive caveat that it exists with somebody like Barnhouse, right? And not a nation like Russia. Uh, or I, sh- I guess I should say the Korean regime uh, dominating Russia. Um, but it's a tricky question, right? Because like how long can someone like Barnhouse keep hidden or, or hold out? You know, how long can this thing be passed down? Um, it, it seems very tenuous, right? This, um, this force being in the hands of somebody who's uh, limiting damage rather than maximizing it. Yeah. So maybe, so so maybe it's if you're going to roll the dice, maybe the safer bet actually is keeping with things how they are with you know America and Russia and North Korea having nuclear stockpiles, but you know at a standstill rather than one kind of you know rogue person having the ability to you know destroy any nation and not really having any sort of uh knowledge or accountability for that individual 
I don't know. What do you think? It reminds me of the the line from uh, Blood Diamond where the teacher of the school asks Danny Archer, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, whether he thinks people are good or bad. And uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character answers, uh, they're just people. And he says, it's, you know, people are not inherently good or bad. It's what they do that makes them, uh, you know, people interpret a particular way. Even a good moment from a bad man can bring meaning to a life. And I think that's kind of how Vonnegut would see it. I think Vonnegut sees it as, if sure, if this power did exist and it needed to be brought, I would rather, you know, have someone like Barnhouse having it, but I don't think he's under any preconception that it's more likely to go to someone like Barnhouse. I don't think he necessarily even has a belief in whether or not humanity is necessarily good or bad. I think he thinks that people are put into circumstances and into belief systems that get them to behave particular ways and new technologies don't necessarily change that. They just build on whatever is there before. It's almost like a path dependence version of humanity. The reason that they try to use Barnhouse as a violent weapon is because everyone is in agreement that protection of the state is of the highest order. And the reason why Barnhouse doesn't is just sheer luck that you got somebody as moral as Barnhouse. So I think both myself and Vonnegut would think that it's probably for the worst because the risks are way too high that it falls into you know, somebody not like Barnhouse and pretty much anyone who's either not just morally inscrutable, but just is would give in to the peer pressure of you know the military industrial complex or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, if you were if you were forced uh, to choose which individual, well, I'll say this: which individual and then which nation to trust with the Barnhouse effect? Which individual would you trust with it? And which nation after that? It's a good question. Which individual? Um, hmm. I mean, I suppose you'd have to just pick like some somebody who's incredibly. Um, I, I think the best way to use it would be to neutralize it. I don't even know if I would gamble on giving it to someone proactive. That that's would not try. the question. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying I would pick I would pick someone who is just le- least likely to use it to like neutralize it. So I'd pick like a massive pacifist, um, but more fun. If I have to pick someone that everyone knows, uh, I suppose I would pick hmm, maybe oh, I would say hmm, that's tough. Somebody who is really against, you know, they'd have to be like incredibly against warfare and power conflict. <sighs> okay, let's go with nation. I would say somebody like Norway who has shown the ability to take things like oil and put them into institutions and use them for at least uh, kind of the construction of, of larger good. So it would probably be like a Scandinavian country. Um, in terms of people though, man, this is tough. I think... Like I feel like I trust uh, Merkel mm. to do to do uh, at least what what she thinks is right. So that's what I'm going with for now. How about you? I was thinking like the Dalai Lama. Yeah, that's good too. I mean, I think the the issue there is that that would I think there might be some like I think if the Dalai Lama and we knew the Dalai Lama had that power right next to China with like territorial ambitions and things, that could be dangerous but you never know maybe he would handle it well hopefully so uh nation yeah i was thinking like uh sweden you know? yeah 
Aren't they always neutral? <laughs> They've always got a good – those Scandinavians, man, they're good at press. I will say – I mean, they do a lot of good stuff. But that's pretty much what everyone would think of first, I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, my answer is, like, America, of course. Yeah. You know, it's, I give it to and, me. Uh, and, and me and America, baby. Me. Yeah. <laughs> you trust it with me. I feel like it would be cool to <laughs> that's have how you it, answer the only question. because yeah. – we I could do it, it but if we just we yeah. just win a bunch of I mean, let's say okay, let's say that we do have it, but instead of we just use it to win a bunch of gambling, like we we just use it to play the dice rolling thing at the beginning. Like we just get crazy rich and we uh, solve problems that way, you know? Yeah. Wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. <laughs> that would be really cool to just because you could you know automatically become like a multi billionaire essentially. Yeah. And then you could just use it except I don't know. I think just Bill never Gates admit that you can even blow stuff up from far away. You just right. like, no, it's just a dice thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it never even occurred to me that I could like decimate <laughs> buildings. Yeah, huh? Well, uh, I'll stay at the craps table. Yeah. Um, and then what? What about this question that you mentioned, uh, which is a question? You know, we've all been in these situations with our uh, thesis advisor shooting the shit after a long day at the at the research center, and uh, Professor Barnhouse um, asks his uh, mentee, the narrator of this story, uh, "Do you think every new piece of scientific information is a good thing for humanity?" And uh, well, how would you? I would do? say absolutely not. I think I'm a, a strong yeah. proponent that the the characteristics of specific technologies have very differential effects that are contingent on kind of the structure they're placed in, but also just the actual technology itself, right? I think like, you can show that parts of the industrial revolution were great in the long run, but terrible for people because they were super labor intensive. And because they were in a structure where labor was really undervalued and you didn't have, uh, you know, laws against working 20 hour days and child labor, it was terrible. But that same technology in a much more equal society where you have rules and you have standards can be great and can be super productive and helpful for everyone. So I think it really depends. There's two components, like where, where and when are people using it? And also, you know, what the technology, what does it require? Can it be harnessed by a specific group of people and be held away from everyone else? It's basically the best difference is oil. The reason why oil is such a problem for for poorer countries is because it can be completely centralized by a government. You don't actually really need any of the people to assist with oil. You can hire a company to get all the oil out of the ground without having to deal with people, which makes for terrible governance. Whereas even other types of resources, if you individual people to mine it and other things, if you at least have to interact with the citizens, they then have a say. So it really is about you know what component of these materials and these technologies what do they require and where are they being implemented? How about you? Yeah, I mean, I, I wish this question were talked about seriously. You know, I feel like new, every new scientific and technological innovation, it's like, oh yeah, of course, because it makes us more money. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it extracts resources faster. It uh, like, uh, you know, it feeds us. Oh, yeah, why the hell not? You know, oh, you want me to answer even... that question? How about you pay me? <laughs> <laughs> so I um and just uh, returning just once more to this uh, Wendell Berry profile. 
he uh so uh, quoting from this article barry's critics see him as a utopian or a crank a luddite who never met a technological innovation he admired in why i'm not going to buy a computer an infamous 1987 essay that ran in harper's he announced i do not see the computers are bringing us one step nearer to anything that does matter to me peace economic justice ecological community or ecological health political honesty family and community stability good work i thought when you said peace he was just like i'm out like the way you yeah. said it, i thought he was peace like still peace. peace. <laughs> yeah no um i think it's a it's a provocative argument right and i, I think later in the article or, or somewhere in his writings he like tries to make the case that the pencil is the superior tool to the computer and i don't know it's a, it's a fascinating because you look at you know discussions of us being on the brink of another civil war, you look at what Silicon Valley has done to the way that we communicate and understand our politics. Um, I don't know, it's a compelling argument. Um, well, I would say two and, things to that. I think one of the things is that's the reason why institutions are so important. And I know they're boring as hell and that's why nobody likes talking about them, but I think the same technology can be brought into in, you know, a society and used to make things more unequal and less fair and downright damaging that can be brought into a society that's more equal and has the constraints and the flexibility to engage with new technologies in an effective way. And I think that is very much the case uh, around the world where you see the same technologies having very disparate impacts on the people that live within those states. Um, and the second thing would be, I don't know if you've ever read or heard a summary of basically what the, the Unabomber's like grand treatise, what is it? Uh, the manifesto, of course. Um, only bad, you know, like very notorious, I guess Marxist manifesto is pretty interesting, but there's manifesto usually, if somebody's calling your work a manifesto, not great. Uh, but his manifesto is all about that exact thing. He's basically retreated to the woods and tried to target a bunch of people who were involved with the uh, use of technology because he thought that more technology was only gonna make the world suffer and that he wanted people to basically stop developing things, which obviously he didn't go about in the right way. And it wasn't never gonna work just by bombing people. It's not usually a great way of convincing people, but the scary part and the reason why people were so concerned with capturing him other than the warfare impact was that he was actually touching on some not so crazy things, um, which is very scary. Yeah. Um... I think that, uh, yeah, it's a it's a compelling question that I don't think will ever be given much serious thought, at least in, in our country at this time. <laughs> well, should we end it there? We usually we end on a high point. I mean, no, I know <laughs> we always end with uh, no. I want to I want to end with how this story ends, if I might. Yeah, do it. So um, the professor. Professor Barnhouse apparently is of short-lived stock. It says his mother lived to be 53, his father to be 49. So they figure, you know, maybe 65, uh, and then this guy's going to die. So people are kind of speculating on what's going to happen. So the professor knows that he cannot live much longer. I say this because of the message left in my mailbox on Christmas Eve. This is his uh, advisee speaking, his former student. Unsigned typewritten on a soiled scrap of paper, the note consisted of 10 sentences. 
The first nine of these, each a bewildering tangle of psychological jargon and references to obscure texts, made no sense to me at first reading. The tenth, unlike the rest, was simply constructed and contained no large words, but its irrational content made it the most puzzling and bizarre sentence of all. I nearly threw the note away, thinking at a colleague's warped notion of a practical joke. For some reason, though, I added it to the clutter on top of my desk, which included, among other mementos, the professor's dice. So he kind of decodes this message. Um, and he says, I've just returned from a visit to my doctor who tells me my health is excellent. I'm young, and with any luck at all, I shall live to a ripe old age indeed. For my family on both sides is noted for longevity. Briefly, I propose to vanish. Sooner or later, Professor Barnhouse must die. But long before then, I shall be ready. So, to the saber rattlers of today, and even, I hope, of tomorrow, I say, be advised. Barnhouse will die, but not the Barnhouse effect. Last night, I tried once more to follow the oblique instructions on the scrap of paper. I took the professor's dice, and then, with the last nightmarish sentence flitting through my mind, I rolled 50 consecutive sevens. Goodbye. Terrific ending. This is the Such time a of good like ending. The, this is uh, like the time of the Twilight Zone. Those guys really knew how to do twist endings, let me tell you. It's such a good ending. It's like, um, yeah, it's it's word perfect. Uh, as as this uh, Zambian British poet named Kaio Chingoni uh, told me one time, uh, it's a, it's a word perfect uh, ending. But um, yeah, I think uh, it's certainly. I don't know. Um, I guess if I were to, to get on my soapbox and try to, you know, defend why people should read fiction, it's because it um, it takes an issue, not really head on, but from a from almost like angle wise or from a sideways uh, direction. I can't remember who made this point. Someone smarter than me, but that's basically the the purpose of fiction is it takes. Um, an issue from a from an angle from a novel angle or something or an angle that you didn't expect and then kind of gets you involved with someone else's consciousness and and a character so much that you can identify and um, let your guard down I think uh, C.S. Lewis said that uh, or someone reading him said that it uh, his stories kind of got past like the dragons of their heart and I like that imagery too uh, just this idea that like storytelling can communicate on a level that's not necessarily political, that's not necessarily ideological, but something that's a lot more like archetypal. And I think it's effective in communicating ideas that we should be kind of thinking about because it usually uses the emotions more than the intellect. And so, you know, I would hope that our current Secretary of State is reading uh fiction stories like these because it kind of gets you out of your normal frame of mind i guess i would say absolutely i think and, the best science fiction it doesn't necessarily have to be books it can even be you know movies and tv shows and some of them much better at this than others uh, not everyone's the master like Vonnegut, but uh, that's why art in general and particularly science fiction you know i love it and that you couldn't get in you know 50 well-written articles about military technology. Yeah, well, was there any other, uh, you said you wanted to mention something about short stories in general or literature, was there anything you wanted to touch on uh, in that respect at the end? Or? Yeah, I mean, I, I would just say, 
I can't remember exactly what I wanted to say about the short story format, but I wanted to hear your thoughts on why Vonnegut in particular is such a effective voice for these types of thought experiments. I mean, I think you touched on that a bit with kind of his background and his literary style and just, you know, being a brilliant, brilliant writer. Um, but if you had, maybe if you had to recommend a few other short stories or maybe just formats for people who are interested in this sort of thing, um, maybe you can give people some recommendations since you're the, the expert in this area. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I'd call myself an expert in this area. But Soon to be one... published fiction author. So I would say that qualifies. Yeah. So um, one thing I will say about Vonnegut also that I didn't mention before is that, and that you mentioned briefly, is that he's funny. He's like funny. he, humor has, uh, is always incorporated into every element, not every element, every one of his stories. In, and in science some... fiction and humor do not always go hand in hand. There's a lot of yeah, science so fiction think... that is humorless. <laughs> totally. So I think that's what makes Vonnegut special um, in particular is that he and it's something I so appreciate about any person in any discipline is someone who like doesn't take themselves too seriously, even if they're speaking on serious matters, even if they are extremely talented or extremely well read or have a higher expertise, someone that can, you know, have some distance from themselves and kind of like laugh at themselves a little bit is something certainly Vonnegut um, could do, even though he, I assume suffered from PTSD and had such a traumatic like war experience. Yeah. Um, the, the ability that he's still able to kind of find some humor in this human dilemma is very, uh, I don't know. I think that's where his hope springs from really. I think, uh, I think he does, his stories are hopeful when they shouldn't be because a lot of them are, are really bleak, but I think that humor um, enlivens it. I think so, there's a problem, I would yeah. say, I don't know if you agree with this, but I think that's a real problem with, with war and kind of stories in general. I think people think, oh, if I make this uber serious, then it'll get across how like dark war is. Where I actually think it's, it's the opposite. It, and the, the fact that soldiers are still joking while bombs are going off, that makes it seem real and makes it, you can almost, it's much more palpable in the fear that people feel when people are acting human rather than when they're acting like robots yeah yeah certainly um i totally agree uh, as far as recommendations of um other people to check out if you like short stories or if you're interested in um reading a little bit i and i speak as someone who's like really intimidated by big books and so i tend to read short story collections because you can pick it up and set it down and don't have to kind of re-enter um you know, the story and figure out where you are and all that stuff. You can pick up something, like you said, read it for 15 minutes and, and get a little nugget uh, to add to your uh, understanding of the world. Uh, two people I'd recommend are George Saunders and Haruki Murakami. Uh, George Saunders is a Midwestern uh, American short story writer who's in his early 60s. Um, he's just an extremely compassionate, um, intelligent writer who who deeply respects you know the reader that he writes for and um, his stories are also funny but very also cruel or you know usually cruelty human cruelty figures prominently in his stories but there's also you know humor um, embedded in a lot of it and I think he's kind of 
a descendant of Vonnegut in that respect. Um, so a couple short story collections from him. Civil War, Land and Bad Decline is excellent. Uh, Tenth of December is excellent. Those are two I'd recommend. And then Haruki Murakami, um, maybe next in line for the Nobel Prize in Literature. His, uh, he's one of the most prolific you know, writers of the last 40 years. Uh, he's in his 70s, a Japanese writer. And his stories are so deceivingly simple. Like he just doesn't use any big language. And I don't know, it's just like, um, it feels like magic because yeah, nothing, you know, everybody understands every word that he uses, doesn't use any $10 words, but what he, the words kind of he creates and sometimes two pages and sometimes, you know, 28 pages are bizarre and surreal and deeply human and always, you know, led with the emotions. And he's really funny too. Um, so I'd recommend uh, those two uh, writers. Um, he's a little bit more fun too than Saunders, I would say, Murakami. Um, he's a little bit more whimsical, I'd say. So, yeah. All right. Um, yeah, and I would recommend people read the the rest of Welcome to the Monkey House. I feel like there's quite a few gems. We could have chosen one of like 20 stories in there and had a, a quality yeah. episode about it. Yeah, if someone's looking for another Vonnegut, I would say Harrison Bergeron is another really good one. Yeah, that's a good um, one. Yeah, so anyhow. Uh, Should we well, wrap it up? Yeah, thanks for, for listening and joining us on this uh, literary journey, all you <laughs> listeners slash readers out there. Yeah, if there's any other stories we need to check out, especially short ones that we can read in a day, let us know. We're always open. Until next time, rational listeners. Peace.